Look out the plane window. Do you see that? Miles upon miles of wind turbines reaching their arms towards us, as under the sea, the electricity they create is transported to an island. An island in the centre of it all, the eye of the storm, where the cables meet and the electricity is transformed. Years ago, there was nothing in this part of the North Sea other than endless, undiscovered seabed. But now, now there's an island, a new feature on the map, fully man-made. Picture it. You stand on ground that feels as solid as any other. While around you comes the sustainable electricity being stored, transformed, transported under the waves across the world. To homes and offices like those you're currently in. Right now, this is just a vision of the future, but it could very soon become a reality. This new two-square-kilometre artificial island in the middle of the Danish North Sea could have the power to fundamentally change the dynamics of the energy industry across Europe. Across the world. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Jane Sophia. And I'm Alex Conacher. For this episode, we have partnered with Fugro to find out about the world's first energy island. This amazing mega project is seeking to make it easier to export wind energy throughout Europe. The Danish transmission system operator Energinet is responsible for carrying out the preparatory environmental studies and seabed surveys and will develop, construct, own and manage the heart of the energy island. It's electrical infrastructure with transformer stations, transmission cables and interconnectors. The island itself will be developed and owned by a public-private partnership, whereas the wind farms will be owned by the private companies that win the concession. This entirely man-made $34 billion island will be a world first, and the goal is for it to supply 3 gigawatts of power by 2030 and build on that thereafter. Currently, offshore wind energy has to be transformed onshore before being distributed to where it's needed. But here the transformation will take place on a new island, central to the wind farm, where it can be easily and efficiently exported to Denmark and the neighbouring countries. What's more, the new island has the potential to enable the creation of a whole range of new industries, from manufacturing and hydrogen production to data centres and scientific research stations. It's something that's never been done before, and the implications are massive. Globally, we're facing particularly adverse conditions, from war to climate change. And it's critical to find new methods for the generation and sharing of clean energy. Historically, renewables have only been viewed as a local power source. But this energy island changes the dynamic, making renewable energy exportable. Currently, energy farms must remain relatively close to land in order to achieve maximum efficiency. But that isn't always where the wind is. We need the island because otherwise we're not able to take up the renewables as far away as we need them. Because there are very good resources of wind out there 100 kilometers from shore, 
but uh, we are not able to transport them if we don't uh, direct the current uh, there uh, from the from the power. So we need to have a place where we can put the stations, our transformer station, and sort of change the power before we can transport them on the long distances. This is Hannah Storm Etlefsen, Energinet's vice president for the Energy Islands project. It's basically to have somewhere to put the transformer stations and then be able to transport the power on these long distances, more efficient and where you share them with other countries. But there's more to this than just exporting energy. And then when we have the island, we can also use it for other things. Factories or hydrogen conversion facilities, for example. The products of which can be used for transport, plastic creation, fertilizers and so on. You could also have data centers out on an island instead of placing them uh, on the country and then spending time and money on, on giving them energy from the sea. You can just have them on the sea as well. You could have laboratories, accommodation for those who are looking into uh, the wind farms, etc. So when you already have land there, there are uh, a bunch of ideas that comes up that people can use the land for. I think it's part of the future in a huge transition as the one that we're going through from fossil fuels to renewable uh, energy, you need all the solutions that are out there and that will be invented. Uh, it's, it's not enough with just one thing. But this is, 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 basic, is definitely a key element uh, and I'm quite sure we will see it in other places as well. We have a lot of uh, connections also to Asia, etc., where they're also asking us to tell us, uh, tell them about this. So, uh, so, so we have already, you know, uh, a lot of leads out uh, for others looking into how to do this. I foresee that uh, others will do the same. And uh, just a few weeks ago, there was an Esberg declaration about the North Sea in Denmark with uh, Germany, uh, the Netherlands uh, and UK also, and, and Belgium also participating and the European Commission. And they were all saying that they want way more renewables uh, with from wind farms up. And they were also mentioning one of the concepts, uh, uh, namely the energy islands as a, as a great possibility. With so many plans and potential uses for an energy island, the next step is to consider the design concept. There are different ways of, of building the actual island, the actual hop. These depend on the environment you're building in and the depth of the water. Where we're looking at in the North Sea, it's not that deep. There's only uh, approximately 25 metres of depth. Compared to the hundreds or even thousands of metres of depth in other areas, the shallow water allows the island to be fixed to the seabed. Although no plans are set in stone, preparatory work is underway. So we are planning a construction, or it's the Danish Energy Agency are planning a construction where there will be sort of a uh, caisson structure in the middle. Caissons are watertight retaining structures used to enable construction in saturated locations such as rivers, lakes and seas. And then there will probably be added uh, platforms or something else, which is a bit more flexible. So you could also have caissons, sort of like Lego bricks, that you can enlarge uh, in modularity. Effectively allowing them to construct the area as they deem necessary. 
But you could also, of course, have a huge sand island, as you see in, in Dubai uh, and other places. However, the North Sea isn't exactly the most reliable of environments. Conditions are unpredictable, and this is a challenge for designers. It's quite a harsh environment with very huge waves. So you need to be able to, to sort of protect um, the electrical gear that we're putting up out there uh, from these huge waves. And it's not just surface waves they'll have to contend with, but the conditions of the seabed they're building on. The formation of the seabed is critical in terms of foundation design. The wrong type of support could lead to the collapse of the island, as well as to the wind farm. This is where Fugro comes in. Geophysical and geotechnical investigations are a critical starting point in knowing what's under the sea and then understanding how to design and construct the wind farm and the energy island. This means undertaking topographic and bathymetric analysis of the area to create a clear picture of the seabed conditions before delving into the ground itself to analyse its composition. Both stages require a variety of tests and equipment. Here's project manager Padwalker to explain the first stages of the project, the geophysical surveying. So what happened was back in uh, back in May 2021, uh, we mobilized our dedicated survey vessel called the Fugro Pioneer. This is a fully mobilized geophysical spread and 2D UHR equipments that have been mobilized for this campaign, where we accurately um, mapped the seabed, the site that is the Energy Island site, uh, with high-resolution bathymetric data using our uh, multi-beam system uh, on board. This bathymetric and seismic data gave them a morphological map of the seabed. Showing natural features such as sand waves, boulders and reefs alongside man-made features. Like wrecks, debris, which could be of some archaeological interest as well. On finding these, they had to inform their clients, who would then inform the Danish Archaeological Society. In fact, the surrounding area was the site of the largest naval engagement of the First World War, the Battle of Jutland. But it's so long time ago now that a lot of it has disappeared. Some has, of course, also been taken up and are in uh, museums, etc. now. But we haven't found as much as we thought from that. Some of the archaeological finds during the survey work for the Energy Island were incredible. But we found a vessel, a submarine from the Second World War, uh, actually a British one. They think that it it has up to uh, 40 soldiers uh, laying there, so oh. it's also a grave for them. So, of course, it's it's still laying there, but we found it and we have made sure that we will not build there. But it, it's when you see the pictures, it's 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 totally intact, and you can see that it's a, it's a it's a submarine. And this isn't all they found. And then, then we've also found, which is actually why you do these things, but we've also found a hole, a huge hole. That's right. Under the seabed, a couple of metres down, is a remnant of the Ice Age. The result of a clash or a corrosion. Basically, a massive hole. So it was quite good that we found it, but it looks absolutely crazy when you see that pictures because it's it looks like there's just an empty hole in the middle of the seabed. This type of geohazard, among others, are why these ultra-high resolution UHR seismic surveys are so important. We interpreted the layers 100 meters below the seabed. So the 2D UHR survey was carried out for performing geohazard survey, like fault findings or uh, accumulation of shallow gas 
or even soft sediments. Now, these could be potential hazard for the, the wind farm. Once the team had a good understanding of the general seabed morphology, next came the UXO surveys and then the geotechnical surveys. Time for project manager Kaspers Bett and his geotechnical team. They take the results from the geophysical phase. So that, that covers the general area and, and you get layer boundaries and, and uh, you get a, a basic sense of the geology. Then they carry out the geotechnical aspects of the survey. And then you need to have ground truthing and to, to test actually like, okay, we see different layers, but how strong is that layer? And then what does that mean for my uh, yeah, foundational design? And that is the project where, where I come in. We come in with the geotechnical survey and we physically touch the soil, we test the soil, we, we classify the soil, and we get a, a good understanding of what's there. Their goal is to remove the uncertainty of the area, so the designers know exactly what they can and cannot do at different locations within the space. To do this, they poke the soil, as Casper describes it, performing cone penetration and borehole tests to determine the composition of the seabed. We go in with a seabed phase, and the seabed phase uh, means that we have sensors which are mounted on a frame and from that frame we deploy the sensors and in this case the sensor is a, a CPT, a cone penetration test. So yeah, this, this obviously goes very fast because we're, we're able to push straight from surface uh, as deep as we can go. But the CPT systems have a limited push power. If an obstruction is hit, that's where the test terminates. And to combat this, Fugro has designed some specialist equipment. We've got a massive system with, with quite some innovation in order to make sure that we get the deepest pushes possible. That's the CCAF, the deep drive, as we call it. So this ensures that we have the deepest push with CPTs. But obviously, sometimes we, we cannot reach the depth that is required for, uh, for the client to, to get the confirmation on the ground that they need. And then we come in with a downhole phase. But a downhole phase means that we bring in drilling vessels. So these are geotechnical drilling vessels. They actually build in drill strings and they, they drill like you would be drilling for oil, but in a much more delicate way because you don't want to disturb the soil. So it's, it's a very, very tricky balance between massive machines trying to delicately bring to the surface uh, soil without disturbing it. Although the hole you've created in this process will collapse, the team make use of it for as long as they can. So once you drill a hole, then you've got two options. You, you get to your depth, you've recorded all your CPT data, you uh, collected your samples. So you just pull out your pipe and you go to the next one. But on the other hand, you already created a hole. So why don't you just put in some other sensors to measure the ground? Such as sensors for geophysical logging allowing the teams to measure more components within the borehole than they would otherwise have been able to. Back on board ship, the samples are categorised and preliminary tests are undertaken. Just to give you an idea of, of also, again, the, the, the amount of effort which goes into that, is for the, for the island, for the artificial island, we've got about 900 metres of uh, sample. And there we'll be, we'll be lab testing for about half a year. And then for the wind farm site, we, we went to about 50 locations and yeah, more than three kilometers of data. And there we, uh, we expect to be testing for about a year. These samples undergo the same process on board. It's uh, mainly basic classification tests. So you get soil 
and then you want to know is this a sand is this a clay well obviously if it's a clear sand or if it's a clean sand or if it's a very sticky clay that's easy but you've got everything in between and it's important that you give the right information so that once we have the samples these samples are collected for further uh, onshore testing so advanced laboratory testing that you have the right information to schedule the right types of tests on the right types of soil uh, and in the right quantities. So it's creating the, the framework of your database from which all the other um, things will be scheduled. But the soil can't be magically transported back to the labs on land. They, like us, must travel there. During this time, the seabed samples will dry out, which can cause inaccuracies in the tests. On the one hand, it just is a massive amount of tests. On the other hand, some tests also just take very long. If you are going to test clay, so you take your sample out of its natural environment, and before you can test it, you need to bring it back to the pressures and conditions it, it was under. So you put it in, into a, a pressure cell, and you make sure that it saturates with water um, as, it, as it was. And all these steps, the harder the clay is, the longer it will take. And some of these tests, they, they can take weeks. So even in these preparation phases Fugro are involved with, building the islands certainly isn't quick. No, and, and the way to do it quickly is just to make sure that you have lots of resources. So for the downhole phase, we, we were able to mobilize three vessels. So then you've got three massive vessels on-site, working alongside, which obviously is, is a challenge when it comes to simultaneous operations on-site. And Padwalker says that's not the only challenge the crews faced. They also needed to liaise with the local fishing community to control fishing when the surveys were undertaken. But it is a busy region of sea, and it wasn't possible to restrict it all completely. Now you might think, oh, they're looking at over 1,000 square kilometres of sea. Surely a bit of fishing wouldn't cause too many problems. The, the interesting part is these fishing gillnets, these are the ones which are deployed at the seabed and not floating somewhere at the seabed. They don't get picked up by sonar. And of course, you would not want any of our equipments, which are being towed, to be entangled on them. Like the 2D UHR streamers and side scan sonars. So what we still did was we liaised with our client uh, quite effectively and we requested uh, to have a fishing liaison officer. A member of the fishing community that was situated on board Fugro's vessels to relay information about the vessel's location. So it was handled in a very amiable and a nice way, a professional way you, uh, with the client and the fishing community. But even if active fishing isn't taking place, fish will still be in those areas of the sea. So you have to understand uh, the, the marine life needs also to be protected uh, on site. So, one of the things which our client requested us to perform was a noise monitoring test. Measuring the underwater sound emissions of their equipment as a function of distance, frequency and direction. This test takes place primarily on Fugro's Pioneer vessel and is important because some of their equipment is acoustically loud. So the, the noise that is generated from these geophysical and seismic equipment can be potentially damaging to the marine mammals on site. So this study, or the, the sound source characterization study, was then provided to the Environmental uh, Impact Assessment a study, which will see how this noise source could affect the marine mammal on site. 
porpoise, uh, the whales, and a few other things which are of interest. Fugrove also incorporated a soft start procedure, turning on their equipment gradually to shoo away any marine life nearby without causing any damage. What we also do is um, we do a marine mammal watch. So on the vessel, we have non-dedicated but trained personnel before we start off our seismic and our geophysical equipment. We take our binoculars, we see if there's any marine mammals within 500 meters of our vessel before we start the work. They also use a passive acoustic monitoring system, or PAM, to detect animals underwater. And we can't forget, this is all happening in the difficult and unpredictable conditions of the North Sea. We also deployed the Sea Watch boys. These are the weather lighter boys, the ADCP. The acoustic Doppler current meter profilers. And CTDs. Current density and temperature meters. This equipment monitors mid-ocean data in real time, feeding it back to Fugro's weather forecasting team, who use the information to update a weather model. These models are crucial for the safe working of offshore construction sites. And we have uh, very accurate weather forecasting being done every day, twice a day, uh, that is provided to our survey vessels and to the client, and so that we can plan our survey work more efficiently. So if you know there's weather coming across, we head to the shelter, we stay there, we go back to the site once we know that the weather is going to get any better. All these problems and solutions, surveys and investigations, require huge amounts of planning, and they all go into one small part of this mega project. And it was the sheer size of the work that truly impacted the people working on it. But what stood out here is just the massive scale of it all. It, 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 was, it was a big project. Um, having so many vessels, so so many people involved over such a long time scale, that, uh, that's what makes it. For Padwalker, besides the scale of the project, the technology is the most exciting bit. It's always exciting because uh, technology not only, you know, uh, it gives you more for less or it, it, it takes away the risks from a project, but also adds a lot of risks around the project as well because it's new technology. So how to manage around this um, and how to make the best out of a technology is what excites me. For Hannah, it's been hard work, but exciting. I feel very lucky to be part of this. Mm. Uh, it's, 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 it's crazy difficult. And, and and some days I'm just thinking, you know, how we're going to do this, but we will. Uh, uh, I'm quite sure we will because we need it. But it's just it's so in enthusiastic to be working on something that will have such a huge impact. And I think that sort of drives everybody on this. So even though we have quite a lot to do and we are running fast, I think that we all try to sort of remember why we're doing it. So so maybe the enthusiasm is what sort of warms my day the most. This project is not only a step forward for the energy sector, it also brings countries closer together and allows us to appreciate the past. The deeper you drill, the more back in time you go. While looking to the future. Someday, Hannah will be able to fly to England and on that journey, look out of the window and see the huge, world-changing energy island that she has helped to create. So, so the whole vision really takes my breath away. Also that I will 
be able and my colleagues will be able to show this to our kids and tell them how a, how a massive impact it will have uh, because of, of the size. From now on, things will be done more across broad borders. It will be done more in parallel, it will be done larger because we need to do this faster and also cheap, of course, to make sure that it's not too expensive for us. And this means that it has to be cross-national. And there's also something beautiful in that, especially taking into account the current situation with the Ukraine war, etc. We need to, uh, to stand shoulder by shoulder and do these things. Engineering Matters is a production of Ruby Media. This episode was written and produced by me, Jane Sophia. Co-hosted by Alex Conacher. Editing by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own seabed explorer is Rory Harris. Special thanks to our episode partners, Fugro. And thanks also to Energinet. And thank you for listening. You can find Engineering Matters on all podcast apps on our website, engineeringmatters.ruby.media, on Facebook, on Twitter, and on LinkedIn.